Uh, it's nice to have you all with us. And uh, Vicar, just continue to let people in if, if, they, if they come. And uh, one thing that I would like to say before we begin is if you open your chat, which is down at the bottom of the screen, there's that little, bo little box that says chat. If you click it, it'll open up. It should open up for you. And I posted the Zoom study handout. Um, also note that with the email that you received today, there was a little box, a little blue box at the bottom of that email, which also had the handout. So in the event that we are able to provide a handout, uh, you could click on that email ahead of time and it'll come up and you should be able to print it. Um, but it is also here for you to click to open if you would like to look at it on your screen as we go. And if you'd like to grab a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, be sure to grab one and uh, or pull one up on your phone or something, an app. And uh, we'll go ahead and get started. And with that, let us pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, you invite us to trust in you for our salvation. Deal with us not in the severity of your judgment, but by the greatness of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so as we begin tonight, so we're talking about protreptics and the art of witness. And I put it on the, the handout that basically pro, what protreptics is, is it's a Greek word and it means to literally to turn someone towards something. But, you know, if you looked it up as a definition, what it really means is to, pro, to promote a particular course of action or to persuade. One of the things about protreptics is it's concerned with the art of living. So uh, I mentioned this last week that it's not just simply an intellectual thing. It's not just about the mind, but it is more of a holistic kind of approach. And it has a rich history, protreptics does. It was done by uh, Plato, for example, and Aristotle. And you see this throughout with different Greek philosophers. It was a method of apologetics. And it was concerned with how one lives. And there were definite things that you would look to do. And so I put it on the handout. There are three things to be concerned about in this sort of approach to witnessing. There's first the logos, which is the word or the speech or the message. And this, by the way, is true of, of rhetoric. Um, and it's definitely true of prokreptic. So logos, so word, speech, message. Um, pathos, you know, you get kind of passion from this, this word, pathos. And that is to arouse someone, to move someone to adopt a course of action, teaching, way of life. And then the third one is ethos. And that basically means the moral character of the speaker. So 
this sort of protreptic idea was that the way you lived spoke volumes to people that would look on. And so Clement of Alexandria was, he lived in, his dates are roughly 150 to 212 AD. He lived in a part of his life in Alexandria, Egypt. And he lived in a time that interestingly enough is very similar to the Western world that we live in today. There were a lot of different philosophies, um, groups, sects, um, religions that were all swimming about in the Alexandrian Egyptian culture. And in those days, you didn't have institutions quite the way we would see institutions today. What people would look for was if there was a school and what was the reputation of the teacher or teachers of that school. And so one would decide which school to attend based on the reputation of the teacher. And so Clement of Alexandria, he was a teacher or catechist of a uh, Catholic, you know, uh, you know, Christian um, school in those days. And his goal was to use protreptics in order to turn people away from uh, harmful teachings, harmful philosophies, and to be brought back to Jesus. And one of the things that he would do is he would often look at what people were looking for in their hearts. So, you know, there's the mind and the things that we process with the mind. Sometimes the mind is in sync with the heart, but sometimes what's going on in the heart is more difficult to detect. And the mind doesn't always adequately mimic what's going on with the heart. And so what Clement of Alexandria would try to do, for example, is he would listen to what are the desires of the people. And he would listen specifically for little grains of truth that he might hear in somebody else's philosophy. And he would listen for if they believed something that actually finds its source in the scriptures, and then he would try to draw them back. And so that was what he would do. And so in his, his protreptic writing, we do have one writing, um, of his that is exhortation to the Greeks. And he, for the most part, only quotes Old Testament, which, seem, which would seem strange to us. But what he's doing is he's dealing with Greek philosophies that go back to the BC era. And so he would look for grains of truth that he would hear in Plato or Pythagoras. And then he would show them how those teachings were first found in the teachings of Moses, for example. And I'll give you some examples like that through the, through the, uh, through this course as we go on. And so deep listening is one of the things that's very important in 
protreptic discourse. And so if you think about it, just very simply, think about the world around us, think locally. What do we see? What do you see when you look around? Uh, when people find out that you're a Christian, if they're not a Christian, do they change the way they behave towards you or do they sort of shift their stance with regard to you? Um, what are the influences of your friends? Do these influences really have an impact on the way they look at the church or how they look at you? Um, what are these influences? Uh, you know, how do they affect your children or your grandchildren? And how does, so one of the things I think about in our culture today that we all deal with is something called secular humanism. And secular humanism really is, it carries basic notions of there is no God, uh, the world's mechanisms and everything that's going on around us are locked within what's in the here and the now. And if you have ever heard of, I'm sure you have, or perhaps you've even read it, uh, Henry David Thoreau wrote a book, Walden, Life in the Woods, and he was a naturalist and uh, basically an atheist. And Henry David Thoreau, I think it's on page two or page three, he, he makes this remark. He says, what man doesn't realize is that the best part of man and his life is destined to become part of the compost of the earth, period. Now, if you just think about that, I mean, this is how he begins his book. And he's laying out his view of the cosmos. And he's basically saying that we have evolution and evolution is just a progress one continual progress and and all you are is a blip somewhere on that timeline of evolution and your significance in that evolutionary process is only that you're just one little blip part of it and so everything that you do everything that you accomplish all is just destined to go back into the soil of the earth and sort of disappear and become a part of the greater peace and that's it and the thing is is much of the culture that we live in today thinks that very same thing or something very similar and so one of the things to ask ourselves then is is there any hope in that and what does that mean for the way forward for that person? Um, how do they view their lives and their, the lives of their loved ones? Um, how do they view the neighborhood? How do they view themselves? And what does it do deep inside? And I think that what it does deep inside has profound consequences. And 
so part of the art of witness then is to do a lot of listening. And as Christians, I mean, look at, I mean, you can just look at the greater contour of America, uh, especially in, in watching, you know, an election coming and, and all of this going on. Um, we as Western thinking people, and this is just, I'm speaking generally, just culturally, we like to be the one speaking, you know, we, we want our voice heard. And, and so as even as Christians, we know we have the truth, we have the scriptures, we have the Lutheran teachings, we have the wonderful gospel. And so it's, it's a tendency that we want to just share. And this is well-intended, right? We see someone, we see someone hurting, we see someone that doesn't have the gospel or doesn't know uh, the ways of Christ, and we just want to tell them in all earnestness, we just want to tell them. And we're told to that, right? Go tell, okay? One of the things that's important for us, though, with the art of witness is that we do a lot of listening. And this is what Clement did. Clement he always engaged the people around him. And in those days, Christianity was just simply fighting for a place at the table of ideas just to be able to have a voice. And in America, Christianity has typically historically been a dominant voice, I think. But one of the struggles that we face is today it's becoming less and less of a voice, um, one that is less prominent, less definitely less dominant. And so how do we deal with that? Well, it's important to understand what other people think. It is important to listen to what they feel. And it is specifically in listening to what people feel and what they desire that would give us an opportunity perhaps in love to share with them the good news of Christ, our Savior. And so if you look, you can take a look at the handout. We live in a board, today we live in a context where the border between truth and falsehood are not easily defined. So this is just the world we live in. Many younger people today are called seekers, and perhaps you've heard that term, you know, people are seekers. They're seeking truth, and they're jumping around trying to find it. There's also a term called tinkerers, and that's less common, but people in our culture today are definitely tinkerers. And what they're doing is they take an experience from over here and they add it to their storehouse of beliefs. And then they'll come over here and they'll have some experiences and they'll add that to their store storehouse of beliefs and practices. And what you end up with is kind of this variegated, metamorphosized kind of experiential practice, a spiritual practice, and it's crafted by the individual. And 
how did this happen? Well, you know, if you take a look at the history of, of, of the world, you know, and you go take the Reformation and you move forward to today, we moved out of a medieval world and into basically a modern world. And modernism, and I think I kind of spoke about this a little bit last week, modernism defines things in nice, neat little boxes, categories, and then you try to put people in these categories in order to be able to define everything and streamline everything. And my favorite example of modernism is Henry Ford. You know, he basically masterminds the assembly line process and he standardizes the automobile. And his goal is to make the same product over and over and over again. And this is modernism. And Modernism sociologically works well for the greatest pockets of society, but it doesn't work for everybody because the idea is to put people in these nice, neat little boxes and categorize. The problem is some people don't get categorized properly or at all. And so Philosophically, and this is a whole nother conversation, but philosophically, postmodernism rises out because what modernism tried to do was provide truths, and then that's it, and anything outside is ignored. So postmodernism rises out, and postmodernism is basically the rejection of modernism, and Postmodernism denies any objective truth. Everything is relative, or that's a part of postmodernism. And so a postmodern person, sort of the idea is you start off as a blank slate, and then you have experiences, and all these experiences begin to define the person. And the person then is a unique piece of craftsmanship from all the experiences of life. But the postmodern would say, all of the, these experiences make me who I am, and but that's me. But you are a different person and you have all these experiences and they make you who you are and you're not wrong, you, that's your truth. And so you end up with this relativism and truth is relative and it's a generalization but it's kind of a, gives a good working knowledge on on how to look at the culture around us now my own opinion is we all have a little bit of modernism or maybe a lot we also have a little bit of postmodernism maybe a lot and people sometimes move back and forth from modernism to postmodernism, but because of the culture in which we live, we all are to a certain degree influenced by secularism. We are all to one degree or another influenced by postmodernism and modernism. And that's just the character of what we're living in as we go forth and we, and we talk to people and we live out our daily lives.
But one of the things that affects us is we can all go along, you know, people go along trying to figure out what, what truth is, but there's always things of the heart that are at work. And one of the things, if you look at the bottom of, of page one, why does the secular thinker draw conclusions against taking hold of the faith, for example? Why or why do they choose and tinker? A, on the periphery of the faith, they take stands on abortion, creation, evolution, same-sex marriage. Maybe they cannot reconcile church positions with their own reason or their definition of things. Or And B, deep pain may be at the root of one's decisions and conclusions regarding faith deep pain from sins of others or one's own sins. And so before we get to the scripture, I'll just say this, that I like to talk to people outside the church and especially younger people to see what they believe and what their practices are. And I have had occasions where I've talked to young folks outside the church and they have told me, for for example, that they believe that we all descend from Mars and we, you know, uh, came from monkeys that were on Mars and things like that. I mean, these are things people have, have told me they believe. And then I'll ask them, well, what do you think about God, Christ, Jesus Christ, and angels and salvation and Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And they look at me and they go, that's crazy, <laughs> you know? And so what's going on? Well, it's hard to detect exactly what is going on, but so often because of people's presuppositions or the conclusions that they draw from that, they they frame a certain viewpoint, but they cannot see the other thing. And I can say for myself, I became a Christian when I was 22 years old. And I remember sitting and talking to friends when I was an atheist. And I remember talk, we'd have God talks or world talks. And I remember saying to one of my friends, he, he stood up with me in my wedding. I remember saying to him, it is completely unreasonable that there could be a God. And I just can't even fathom that's, that such a thing could exist. I mean, how could that even be possible? And I went on kind of a tirade about it. And I really believed that the fact that there was a God was just a ridiculous notion. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, I'm in the Lutheran church and, and I'm going through catechesis and then I'm up there confessing the creed and, and uh, taking the vow of faith. And, you know, how does, you know, what, what was going on within me? Well, I think that in, on some level, I was dealing with pain myself. Um, I had also my own presuppositions of what I thought about Christianity and the church. And when I was an atheist, I didn't want any part of the church. And 
one of the things that I found when I finally became a Christian was that the church was completely different than what I thought it was. And, but I was dealing with a lot of pain in the world, um, pain from my past, pain from my sins. And so, you know, point B at the bottom of page one, deep pain may be at the root of one's decisions and conclusions regarding faith. Deep pain from sins of others or one's own sins. And so the first words of Jesus in John's gospel actually is a question. What do you seek or desire? And I think that that is a, a very pertinent way for Jesus to begin John's gospel. He sees people following and he asks a question. What are you seeking? What are you desiring? And then, of course, it unfolds. The whole gospel unfolds. But if you look at pain, our compass for what we seek or desire is often regulated by one's pain. And there's some scripture passages on page two that you can take a look at. Um, Revelation 16 is one good one. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. But then in Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So, you know, these are the things that Jesus Jesus comes to address the world's pain. And so I have a lot on this handout. I, I think I have four pages and uh, there's no way we're going to get to four through four pages today. So if you would, if you want, you can, first of all, open your Bible to Zechariah chapter three. And I'll, I'll hope to do this in 15 minutes. I, this, I love this story. Um, Zechariah chapter three. And it's on, if you want to follow notes, it's on page three of the handout. And it's a beautiful text. And this is a, a great way to do some art of witness with people. If, for one thing, it's, it's helpful if you can become conversant with a story in the Bible so that you can just tell the story. And then you just sort of sh share it with a person. And, you know, after listening to them and their concerns or their pain, um, if you could get someone to be honest, they may tell you that they feel like if there was, if there were a God, he would never accept them. You know, I have my pain. I have the, you know, they may say I have the pain from what others have done to me that I carry with me and it makes me angry. Or I have my own pain uh, from my, my own sins that I have done, the things that I've said, things I've left undone. And so then you would come and you would, you would, for example, tell this story in Zechariah chapter three. And it, it, it's situated in uh, 
post-exile Israel. They have come back to the promised land. But the one thing that hasn't happened yet is the temple hasn't been reconstructed. And in the Old Testament, you needed the temple for God to come and the people to come and meet God. So no temple, they were separated and apart from, from Yahweh, from the Lord. And so the story is such that the angel of the Lord, uh, whom Luther says, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Okay, so you have the angel of the Lord. So you have the second person, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity sitting there. Joshua, the high priest, comes in and stands before the Lord. And he is going to get his commission to rebuild, oversee the rebuilding of the temple. And it's a noble thing because he's going to reconnect God and people together. Uh, it's also interesting that in Hebrew, uh, the word for wisdom is hakam or hakma. And it, this word is often used for artists, the artisans and the skilled craftsmen uh, who do all of the craftsmanship and the work and the building of the temple, all the way down to the people that make the tapestries. Those people are considered the hakam. They are the wise. So in the Old Testament, wisdom isn't this stuff that's up in the sky or up here in the head, but it's actually skill that brings beauty into the lives of others. It's a really interesting way of looking at, at wisdom. It's very noble. So here's Joshua, the high priest. He comes before Jesus, okay, and he's going to get his commission to go out and start this wonderful, most important work. So I often ask people, so you can think about this on your own. If you, when you come before the Lord, how would you like to come? What would your appearance be? Are you just going to come, come on out in the, in the sweats you, uh, you wear in the morning when you first get up? Or if you're out working in the garden with those holes on, you know, on the side or on the knees, or are you going to try to put on your best? Well, we would probably think, right, that most of us would want to come before the Lord looking as, as good as possible. We're coming before the Lord, right? So how does Joshua come before the Lord? Now, keep in mind there's angels standing by. So you get this sense that, you know, it's like coming into church. All around you are the saints and the angels. You're standing there in the midst. There's Jesus sitting up at the front. You come up and what's your appearance? Well, for Joshua, the high priest, it says that he is clothed in filthy robes. He's got a filthy robe on. And it's really graphic in the Hebrew. His robe is soiled with human excrement. That's what the Hebrew says. So definitely an unpleasant sort of a thing, but this is the best he's got. And how did he get that way? Well, I'm sure it's embarrassing. Uh, he got that way because of the devil, right? Ultimately, 
all the troubles of the world come from the Garden of Eden where Satan comes in slithering in as a serpent and deceives Eve and then Adam and then boom. And now the whole world is tainted. And so here stands Joshua as the byproduct of this broken world. And then who's standing at his right hand but Satan himself. And Luther says that the Hebrew for Satan means hostile one, but it definitely means adversary. And Satan is standing on the right hand, accusing Joshua. Why the right hand? Because the right hand is the spiritual side. It's the good side. It's the side where there would be a good defense. And so Satan is, in essence, blocking Joshua's chance of getting out of this. There he is. And, and, he's, and he's the reason, right? All those times where, you know, perhaps Satan dangled the carrot of temptation. Joshua falls in or the world came at Joshua and then Joshua reacted. Or maybe it was evil done to Joshua and then he becomes angry or bitter. And so you have the culmination of everything with Joshua's appearance visibly known to all. And so how does one respond in a situation like this? I mean, I could say that part of my fear when I was an atheist was that there would in fact be a God and I would have to go stand before him. And because I had the view that only the good people, you know, I always looked at it like those Christians over there, they're the good people and I'm not one of them. So I, it would never work. I don't belong over there with them. And if there is a God, he's going to look at them and say, you're such good people. Come on in. But that guy over there, forget it. He's out. And I didn't know the gospel. Right. And I had basically the devil and, and all the baggage accusing me and distracting me and discouraging me. And, and I think this is what people deal with a lot. Like the fact that there is a God is a, the thought of it is a fearful thing. Um, another thing too is with secular humanism, lots of times people feel like they lose their freedom. If there's a God, the Lord with his teachings so back to Joshua, though, he's there. Satan is at his right hand accusing him. Just what people fear. And how does the Lord respond? Does he sit there and go, yeah, you're right. He looks pretty bad. He's done a lot. He's made a lot of mistakes. You're right. He's no good. That's not how the Lord responds at all. If you look at the text, the Lord turns to Satan and says, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord of heaven and earth rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So what you hear is absolution, forgiveness, new beginnings, new creation. It's the Lord dealing with Joshua's pain, his pain, his angst, his sins, his worry, his lack of trust, the whole bit. 
And then the Lord turns to the angels after he rebukes Satan. And he says, get a, get a clean robe for this guy. And they go and they give him a clean robe. Zechariah gets caught up in it and says, yeah, give him a clean miter or turban. And they get one, a new turban put on his head. And these are priestly garments. These are not just common garments, but they are. In fact, I put it uh, on the handout on page four. Robe of state is what it says in Hebrew. He gets the robe of state. And Luther calls it a beautiful robe. And the clean turban is also for holy service. These are the very things that the priest would wear when he goes in. And then verses six and seven are so interesting. And, and I'll read these. He says, and the, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. And one of the things to keep in mind, and I will, I will bring up this theme over and over in the course of this study, the notion of road and way is highly spiritual. It comes up all the time in, in the scriptures and the Hebrew is halak. And so it's a journey. And in fact, uh, in the original text in the Hebrew and then in the Greek, it does talk about journeying. We see this often in the Gospels where we'll be told by the evangelists that Jesus and the disciples will move on to another place. They journey. It's, it's a spiritual journey. It's a holy road. And there's much teaching, much learning, growing growing wise. And so what you see with this is, and, and this is so true to like our, our understanding of justification and then sanctification that the first thing that the Lord does is he re-robes Joshua, takes off the filthy garment, puts on a clean one. Um, it's very reminiscent of the baptismal garments that we see in the New Testament. And it goes very well with the parable from Sunday of the wedding banquet. And the, the king casts out the one, the one guy from the wedding banquet because he doesn't have on wedding clothes. Well, what could that be? Well, very likely it's his baptismal garment. He doesn't have his baptismal garment on. Uh, he hasn't been cleansed by the Lord. And so the first thing with Joshua is he gets cleansed, he, new robe, new turban. And then the Lord says, now, if you will journey on my road and my ways, and if you will guard my commands, my, if you guard my teach, teachings and you watch over my house, then I will give you access to walk among those who are standing here. And so who are those standing here, but 
the angels or the heavenly host. So you take a look at this and you see, I like to tell this story to people who don't know anything about the scriptures or the church or Jesus, because the world does not often respond to one's sins or mistakes like this. Look at the news. Watch what's going on around us. Judgment carries with it a certain severity in our world. And when a person makes a mistake or they commit a sin, there's no way out. And so people either have to deny sin or they're condemned and they have to live with it as a scar for the rest of their lives. But when people come in before the Lord and come in before Jesus, they come into the church, they confess their sins, they hear absolution. They find a new beginning, a change. And what does that bring but hope? It paves the way to move forward, to walk to love, to be loved. And this is what's going on in this text. And so you get to that point then to ask the question, does humanity need this kind of response to one's failings? And what is it about this road traveled that is so important for humanity? What does it provide that other roads do not? Well, the teachings of the Lord, they are teachings of ways to live. But it all promotes the unending mercy of the Savior. The gospel inaugurates it all, and it all comes right back to the gospel. Love and mercy always. And when people live in this absolution, it changes their lives, but then it also provides an opportunity for other lives to be changed and to embrace it as well. And as we know as Lutherans, to live by grace we see that mercy always wins. It always comes back to mercy. And Christ's love and forgiveness for us comes out as a beautiful, beautiful balm of healing with a wonderful fragrance. And then that fragrance emanates and goes out to others. And uh, we see this actually in... Uh, in one of St. Paul's uh, writings uh, to the Corinthians, where he says, uh, we go out in triumphal procession. We are like a sweet aroma to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. So what is that? But we are that aroma that finds its source in Christ it comes to define us, and then that wonderful aroma 
goes out to others. And so it is the hope for the world, just as it is a wonderful hope for us. So I'll, I kind of ran a couple minutes over there, uh, but I'll end there. And um, let me ask, if you, if you have any questions, you can stick around. Uh, I'll stick around until 9.30. Uh, you can type a message into the chat if you uh, if you have any questions. And let me type here my email into the chat. And you can email me if you have any questions uh, beyond this session. It's nice having all of you with us, uh, with me tonight. Thanks, thanks a lot for coming. Um, and I, and I want to say in conclusion, I really appreciate you coming back uh, after last week. You know, I was talking to Pastor Bruzek about this that it's so weird doing Zoom because I'm the kind of person where I love talking in a classroom with people and getting your reaction. And I have to feel the room. You know, I have to feel the crowd. And uh, that's what I really, the juices really get going. So, you know, this whole Zoom thing is kind of a, an, a unique a unique thing. And uh, last week I was kind of trying to get my bearings. So uh, thanks for coming back and, and spending time with me again and, and allowing me to, uh, to share this with you. I really appreciate it. So with that then, um, let's go ahead and uh, close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord's blessings to all of you this night. May you rest in the Lord's peace. Um, someone asked, when it comes to applying this to witnessing, how might one counter the argument? But yeah, Joshua is already the high priest. He was one of the good ones. Um, I just simply respond that um, he was high priest from his lineage and while he was a high priest, he still didn't match up uh, to the task, and he was representative of the whole community. And that was part of it. They were coming out of, the, they had come out of the captivity, and um, they they were still wretched and um, and removed. And so he 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 represents that. Then another question was, Pastor, do you have an example of what happened when you shared the Zechariah passage with a person hostile to Christianity? And in a couple of instances, people were really moved because they found themselves in the story. In a, in, in a couple of cases, it led to baptism. They sought baptism. So it led to catechesis. And then It is an interesting thing because uh, it's so different. Part of when people have heard this account, 
it's so different from what they have heard before, what they thought Christianity was, because so often people on the outside think that Christianity is just precepts, laws, rules, and only the strongest and the good people can do it. Uh, but the rest of us are are sunk. And when one encounters an account like this, it it is often the first time they've ever heard anything like it, that God can forgive me because he loves me, that he could cover my sins out of his love and that he would lead me forward and then teach me and and shepherd me and journey with me the whole way then let's see here uh is this the same old testament joshua that entered the promised land so no this is this is a joshua later on uh when we think about the joshua uh of the book's namesake uh that joshua was was much earlier so good question and then uh, let's see another one. It might be unrelated to your point, but what might be the connection with the priest's name being Joshua? Great question. Is that coincidence? Nothing in scripture ever seems coincidental or something we should pay attention to. You are right on. Good, good, good point. Um, in So in the Greek, in the Septuagint, in the Greek text, it's Jesus, which is Jesus. So boy, uh, you could take some, uh, some, uh, thoughts on that and so you know of course we have the son of god is the angel of the lord right the pre-incarnate christ uh luther says standing sitting there with joshua but then joshua in greek named jesus so um jesus takes our filthy rags and then he he gets rid of them for us so good thinking there very good all right you all have blessings have a good night See you again soon.